Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zaffert. Dr. Glenn Siegel is is very impressive. (laughs) We can start off by saying that. Um, Among other things, a research fellow of the Esri Center for Iran and Persian Gulf Studies at the University of Haifa. He's an associate of the think tank for the research of Islam and Muslims in Africa and a senior researcher for the Ariel Research Center for Defense and Communication. Dr. Siegel is a counterterrorism expert and specializes in civil-military relations and strategic communications, where he also consults for NATO. I'm absolutely delighted to have him as my guest here. Um, welcome, Dr. Siegel. Thank you very much. I was there yesterday at the Great Park uh, Show where you addressed an audience uh, on the topic of Israel and security. And your depth of knowledge of Israel and the surrounding area is amazing. Um, things change in the Middle East all the time. In terms of Israel and its strategic uh, settings with Syria, Iran, Lebanon, how are we looking? Israel has to be prepared at all times for all eventualities. So although we did not expect a state-bound threat, and haven't expected a state-bound threat since 1973, we still procure the most sophisticated weapons that we can and add into that the technology and add-ons that we develop ourselves. So we have just procured, and we're going operational now with F-35 aircraft. We are procuring the next generation of naval patrol vessels for our gas fields in the Mediterranean Sea. But at the same time, we understand that the major threat which faces Israel is not state-bound. It is uh, fundamentalism. It is terrorism. And it is insurgents which might cross over the border from conflicts of which have nothing to do with Israel. And this we should dominantly, as you have noticed and mentioned, regarding Syria and Iranian intervention in Syria, which has exacerbated the situation over there. So we are prepared for that. The Syrian conflict has been ongoing for seven years now, and we have managed to avoid any direct intervention or repercussions from that conflict. Dr. Siegel, how do you see the Syrian conflict playing out? I mean, seven years, so many deaths, um, so many different interests, Russia, America, so many different interests, um, obviously no real concern for the humanitarian crisis that you barely hear about in mainstream media. Where to? We must remember that the Syrian civil war started as part of the Arab Spring, which uh, started exactly on the 10th of December 2010, when a Tunisian worker basically felt the effect of increasing price of flour, increasing taxation, start of the winter. And this started a movement all the way across the Middle East and North Africa, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, and Syria. Individuals were seeking more rights, more freedoms. This is for the youth. We can say they were the gene-clad, mobile phone-wielding social media crowd. They received support from society. They received support from outside superpowers. The United States helped topper Gaddafi in Libya. Unfortunately, there was no further assistance. Libya is totally in disarray, as is Yemen. Do you think they should have been? It should have been. You take a responsibility when you remove one government. Surely you should assist in establishing another. Is is uh, sorry just to kind of stop here yeah. and just explore because I mean this is like a fundamental point point in geopolitics you know that 
foreign powers get involved in things that may or may not concern them or for their own interests. The interests change or whatever, and suddenly they pull out and we're, we're left with a mess. And this isn't like a recent <laughs> phenomenon. The mess we're left with is a mess of a civil war in Syria. The same happened in Syria. Individuals sought freedom, began a civil war to remove a minority rule by President Assad's Alawite sect. Into the defray stepped the Sunni militants, led by Saudi Arabia. Into the fray stepped across the border the Iraqi Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. President Assad called, as he is Alawite Shi'i, he called on the assistance of the major Shi'i country in the world, Iran, for assistance. They came to assist him. And suddenly we found what was a small civil war to remove a dictator ended up as a battleground of proxy between two major sects of Islam, Sunni and Shi'i. Not only that, we know in Lebanon, Hezbollah was already being supported by Iran, so they moved across the border to assist as well. This is strategic importance for oil and a naval base for Russia. So Russia moved in. It's on the border with Turkey, which is a NATO ally. And we know the NATO syndrome is basically one for all and all for one. All of a sudden, America was involved. So yes, Syria actually became the new Vietnam for everyone. This is where we are at the moment. We are seeing one of the last battles to remove the rebels which started the civil war seven years ago in an area called Idlib. So the rebels, the freedoms, the ones who want democracy and liberty are the ones who are going to lose at the end of the day. What we're seeing after this is President Assad still going to be there. Russia is still going to be there. They need that naval base on the Mediterranean to prevent foreign forces entering the Black Sea and preventing them doing what they want to do in their own backyard in Crimea. So it's not just Syria. It's becoming an entire regional, if not a global, conflict in Syria. So so you predicting that um, the war will be over just by virtue of the fact that the rebels will be defeated eventually? The civil war will be over. What we are left with is a fragmented state. Right. So on the eastern side, we have the Kurds and Kurdistan, and in fact, Iraq. We saw uh, early in this morning that Iran launched missiles against targets in Kurdistan, which is in Iraq, and France protested against that. And Iraq said it's... Uh, on behalf of their, their supporters, Iran, that is fully legitimate to support Shi'i Muslims. We've also seen uh, the president, uh, the prime minister, sorry, of Iraq saying he will not stand for new elections, al-Abadi, because Shi'i forces under the support of Iran now control virtually the whole of Iraq. So we're seeing that the Shi'is of Iran are moving westwards. They are not going to relinquish control of Syria nor Lebanon. So the civil war might be over, but what is left, in fact, is the Sunni fundamentalists supported by Saudi Arabia on the main part who are going to restart that war. They were not willing to see Iran mm. control an entire east-west from the hills of Southeast Asia to the Mediterranean Sea, which is what they do at the moment. So we, let's bring in Iran, <laughs> a major player here, and um, quite possibly, I think you said last night, the biggest threat to Israel. It's the biggest threat to Israel on a number of counts. One, the potential for them to develop a nuclear weapon and provide that as an umbrella for terrorist activities such as Hezbollah and Hamas. Two, Hezbollah and Hamas. They are proxies enacting the will and desire of Shia Islam supported by Iran. All intents and purposes, we have to put them all together. Iran is a state threat, a nuclear weapon, a missile. Very hard to take down a nuclear missile because the radiation has its impact. Second of all, it's also a non-state threat because they are supporting Hezbollah in the north and Hamas in the south. 
If we take Iran out of the equation, we'll find that our ability to deal with the situation in Gaza, which is daily rockets launched against South Israel, will be far easier. Why? Because, for intents and purposes, Egypt can then prevent its and open up its blockade of Gaza and allow people in Gaza to move into the Sinai Peninsula. They've closed that down because there's a big threat now from the Shia-supported, Iranian-supported Hamas to the Egyptian government as well. Uh, this, we have to look at the connection between Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood under Morsi, which was deposed by uh, the military recently as also part of the Arab Spring escapade. So yes, Iran is a major element which has to be removed from the equation which will assist in Israeli security. So Iran, you have just identified Iran as a major problem, but how do we deal with Iran? I think the world community is dealing with Iran. Not to the extent that we would like it and not to the speed that we would like it, but it is dealing with it. President Trump has noticed and informed the world, he has notified the world, that the 2015 nuclear deal is not really a good deal and sanctions have to be posed on Iran to join the international community. We've seen other states who have done so as a consequence of realizing that their actions are just inappropriate. So it is possible, and it is possible for the current rulers of Iran to continue being the rulers of Iran. The only thing they have to realize is don't threaten other states. Don't develop technology to do so. Don't use terrorist organizations and subversive and insurgency tactics to do so as well. And they can fully continue. In fact, Muammar Gaddafi of Libya realized that for decades. In 1986-87, the United States bombed Tripoli in Libya. After Libya supported a terrorist organization which bombed a discotheque in Berlin, killing American servicemen, Gaddafi realized it's time to stop. He stopped, and everyone let him stay in power for another 30 years. <laughs> so the Ayatollahs just have to realize, stay in your own country, mind your own business, and everyone will be happy. Who is Iran's major uh, enemy? I mean, Israel is there, um, but I think, it ha you know, where's Israel on the list in terms of Iran's uh, enemy number one? Enemy number one is Sunni Saudi Arabia. Right. There is, as we know, a difference in opinion in the definition and interpretation of the Quran. Sunni, which is over 85, if not 90% of the world's Muslims, believe that the Prophet Muhammad, in the year 640, almost uh, 1,500 years ago, was the last prophet. They do recognize, for example, that Adam was the first prophet. Uh, Shia Islam, on the other hand, believes that there were prophets after him. So Sunni look at Shia as being heretics. And this started the problem 1,500 years ago and is ongoing. The various sects of Shia Islam, which are more specific than others, such as the Druze, the, uh, the Baha, and so forth. But the Sunni has seen us, uh, the radicalization of Islam, something we call political Islam. The Wahhabi sect of Sunni Islam, for example, is Al-Qaeda, which has metamorphosed itself into uh, the Islamic State, ISIS. So this is the dispute, and geographically they're right next to each other, Saudi Arabia and Iran. In between, on one side, we could call it the Persian Gulf, which is the ancient name for Iran. On the other side, they call it the Iranian Gulf, but for all intents and purposes, there's a gulf between two sects of Islam. And um, in terms of uh, – Israel is convinced that Iran has a nuclear weapon, and not only does it have it, it is very happy and willing and ready to use it. We know one thing for certain, they have the delivery capability. So having a nuclear weapon is not just enough. You have to be able to deliver it to the target accurately 
and in a manner which no one can prevent it. So one thing is for certain, Iran has missile capability, Iran tests missile capability, Iran demonstrates the missile capability. We accept the fact that the missile capability is also a show against Saudi Arabia to say as a matter of deterrence, don't attack us, we can attack you. The ability to deliver a nuclear weapon on top of a missile is a much disputed area. Uh, how effective will the nuclear missile be? For example, the missile, when it lands, has to be at a certain angle. Otherwise, the bomb goes straight into the ground and explodes inside the ground, not doing any damage. Whether or not they can do it, we don't know at this stage. One thing for certain is there's a difference between credibility, capability, and intent. They have the intent, and this is the problem. Having the intent means you are on the path to having the capability and demonstrating credibility. So at the first stage, we have to say, stop the intent. Right. Israel, obviously, um, is very nervous of the fact that this ha uh, Iran has the intent and possibly <laughs> the capability to do so. Um, are you working in isolation in terms of protecting yourselves? Are you working um, internationally? Iran has demonstrated not only the intent against Israel and Saudi Arabia, but against everybody else to be aggressive. It has deployed its uh, revolutionary guards to Syria, to Lebanon, to Yemen, and is creating a regional problem. It is fomenting unrest in the independent state of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. It has informed the Shia communities of the oil-rich eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia that they would support them in revolutionary activities against the Saudi government. It has told the world and demonstrated that its missiles can reach Europe and further afield. As a consequence, not only Israel is being felt threatened by Iranian intent and aggressiveness. So Israel is joined by the vast majority of states in the region, as well as Europe, And indeed, as a consequence, the United States in saying, the time is up. You are basically threatening the world. So Israel is not isolated. Israel is not alone in this. Israel is assisted by and is assisting others. Uh, we are even assisting states in the Persian Gulf and even Saudi Arabia in uh, developing defensive and deterrence uh, measures against Iran aggression. You mentioned right at the beginning one of the threats in the region is fundamentalism. You spoke about al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, Is there, dealing with fundamentalism in the in the region, is there counter-terrorism programs that people can follow? Is every region, is ISIS different to Al-Qaeda, different to the other terrorist organizations? What is the infighting among the terrorist organizations themselves like? And Well, this is where the difference between the Sunni and Shiite. The Sunni very much are a franchise-type organization based upon their interpretation of the Quran and what is a jihad, a holy war against those who do not believe in uh, Allah, uh, the God, and his prophet Muhammad. The Shia is more organized. The Shia is very much hierarchical. The Shia very much is a militia-type organization. So countering the Sunni terrorist is going to be far harder than counting the Shiite terrorist. So we believe that the Shiite terrorist actually is transitionary. More problematic is if, for example, we have a peaceful resolution with Iran, the Sunni terrorists. The Sunni terrorists is far harder to counter. This is the Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and so forth. There is very little communication between the Sunni terrorists. They operate in cells. They can establish themselves, Boko Haram in Nigeria, Al-Shabaab in Somalia. 
based upon an ideological affinity or an affiliation with the, the home organization but never have any contact with them. The Shia with Iran is far more organized in terms of a militia. But in all of these, we have to look at what is the objective, what is the goal. We've known for many, many years terrorist activities or insurgency activities can come under different headings. One could be freedom fighting, whether they used techniques of terror and violence to obtain nationalism, a nation state. This we can counter. It's a, a form of extremist politics. We can move the violence to be negotiation, to be transition, to be governance, uh, such as with uh, Jomo Kenyatta and the Mau Mau in Kenya, for example. When we're dealing with fundamentalism, when we're dealing with individuals who have no other goal than to convert somebody by the stick rather than the carrot to believing and practicing Islam or to die if you do not do so, this is what we're facing with Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. Those are the difficulties we have. And it could be small numbers of people, which is very hard to identify. The Shiite groups under Iran is far easier to identify, the militia, one of which is led by the Muqtadir al-Sadir in Baghdad, uh, the Mahdi army, and he is now uh, one of the majority of the seats in the parliament in Iraq and therefore is moving in the transition from violence, extremists, to be one of governance. So there is a difference, yes. Dr. Siegel, we only have three minutes left, but and this is an unfair question to ask you to answer in three minutes. <laughs> but um, t- do you anticipate South Africa being a target for terrorism? I do not believe it will be a target for external terrorism. We saw that the very first terrorist activity which we could probably have identified in South Africa was the Fox Street escapade in 1976, uh, domestic, slightly uh, mentally insane individual. We can say that the dispute that's currently happening between Sunni and Shiite in the Western Cape or attacks against mosques is very, very localized. I do not see a major objective for any of these organizations from outside South Africa as being involved in South Africa. One of the great advantages we have the geographical expansions, the diversity of our population in those geographical expansions that these will not take any grassroots momentum. So I think South Africa will not be, for the main part, impacted by what's happening elsewhere. And indeed, if South Africa wanted to, it could actually assist others in a transitionary period from violence to peace, as it has done itself. Well, I think that's almost a brilliant way to end off the interview. Um, thank you very much for joining me. And I know, I know you've worked extremely hard while you've been here in Joburg. So thank you for that as well. Thank you very much. And. Uh